Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Mom and pop stores can't survive. They already compete against the chain stores, and now they're at a competitive disadvantage. Our restaurants won't make it to the governor's plan timing of around July 1st. Um, and, you know, the, and it's not just the mom and pop stores that can't survive. The chain stores that aren't open or are partially open, they can't either, and our, their employees can't survive without the jobs. That's Orland Park Mayor Keith P. Kong. This is WBBM's In-Depth, where we take a deep dive into a story we're telling on the air. I'm Cisco Kodu. This week, we continue our ongoing discussion of COVID-19. We'll take a look at the NFL and a possible way for at least some fans to attend games in person. As the state of Illinois gradually reopens, that will mean more traffic and more accidents. We'll get tips on how to safely deal with a crash amid the pandemic. Many people have been working from home, and that can be a nightmare if you have a micromanaging boss. We'll get tips on how to navigate that. States all across the country are reopening their economies in different ways. We'll hear more from the mayor of Orland Park about that in just a few minutes. Let's begin, though, with Michelle Cortez, a health reporter at Bloomberg News based in Minneapolis. Michelle, we heard Dr. Anthony Fauci and several other health leaders testifying before the Senate. What are they saying? Dr. Anthony Fauci was telling uh, senators the risks are serious if we open up too soon and start getting rebound virus and a, a future peak that's going to happen in the fall or the winter. There could be real consequences from that. More deaths more disease, and more serious harm to Americans if we don't move cautiously when it comes to opening up. And a lot of senators, I mean, they're, they're, you have senators representing, obviously, many different states with different situations, and I would imagine different reopening plans. So kind of a challenge here. It is going to be really an interesting process that happens across the country and we'll be able to go back and look a lot of the states are trying to work in concert with others in their regions so that we're having a consistent uh, amount of openings so that you don't get people you know just across the border doing something dramatically different but regionally we are going to see differences in the south things are opening up a lot more quickly than they are in the the north and on either coasts and if we start seeing rebounds in certain areas and not in others, then maybe we'll know that we need to dial back on certain things. It's also possible that in the South, it gets very hot. Maybe people aren't out as much as they would otherwise be, and we might see fewer infections out there. It's just something we're going to have to watch. Here in Illinois, you have a very interesting concern because you have the governor of Illinois who is opening things at a different pace than the governors of Indiana and Wisconsin. 
he's concerned about any sort of uh, economic activity loss and that sort of thing. You have the governors of Wisconsin and Indiana and many mayors who are concerned about Illinoisans bringing the virus over there. So you, you may have just even among border states, very different paths forward and also very different fears. Absolutely. And the thing is, is no one exists in a vacuum. So folks from Illinois could potentially pick up the virus from across the border and citizens of the state could go other places to do get their haircut, to go to the salon, to get a tattoo or a vacation. So we're going to be seeing both economic and health impacts in every area that is going to be, you know, a fluid situation. The White House Coronavirus Task Force is back to meeting at the White House instead of remotely. In spite of the fact that you have a few cases of coronavirus, people testing positive in the White House. I mean, if they can't keep the White House safe from this stuff, can anyone, can anywhere possibly be safe? Well, it's such a great example because it is a microcosm of our entire country. You do pretty much have an isolated a very contained space in the White House, the old executive office building, that complex. It is literally gated off. You have to have passes and badges in order to get in and out. Every single person is checked. Now when you go in, you get your temperature checked. People who are in the presence of the president and the vice president actually get virus tests to see if they're infected in the moment. No one is going to have that kind of close immediate responses for their workplaces. And even at the White House, we're seeing people show up with positive tests. So we know for sure that we're not going to be able to just eradicate this virus through testing. The question is going to be when you're testing that aggressively, if you will be able to isolate those people and stop an outbreak from occurring. So I know everyone at the White House, from my colleagues over there, people are worried that it's starting to circulate within their closed environment on the one hand. On the other hand, if you can isolate those folks and stop it at its point of transmission, then that would be hopeful for them, but the rest of the country is going to have to figure it out too. Earlier, we talked about states reopening at different paces. Let's talk about Germany. They reopened in pretty significant ways, and now they're seeing a a second wave. They're seeing another outbreak. They are seeing another outbreak. South Korea as well. It does not really take an awful lot of people in order for that to happen. As we've talked about before for the last couple of weeks and months, Cisco, we know that the population is largely vulnerable. No one has seen this virus before, and previous infections don't offer you any protection from this. So we all stayed inside. People, you know, uh, suppressed the curve. We lowered the peak and saved our healthcare systems. But that just means everybody out there is still vulnerable. So if you get somebody going out with the virus, they can seed it in different people. And once you get a super spreader event happening, dozens of people in just one night can get infected and then it takes off. And that could happen in many places here in the United States, just like it's happening in Germany. Uh, Let's talk about the food supply. We have prices at grocery stores going way up. And yet we hear about pigs being slaughtered, milk being spilled, fields being plowed over. What's going on? 
situation there is that, you know, there's two different things happening. Number one, you actually have to have the workers who are who are gathering the crops, who are slaughtering the animals, who are preparing everything to bring it to the grocery stores. When those folks are getting sick or you can't get people in to do the work, then you literally have crops rotting in fields and have animals that can't be converted to be used for food. The other thing is the supply chains themselves. If you have food that goes to a restaurant, you don't have to have the same kind of packaging. You don't need the same labeling. You don't need all the same information as you have to have for a grocery store. So you can't take something that was going to go to, you know, a TGI Fridays or a McDonald's and just send it, you know, to a food bank. They, there's just not a system for that. So when you don't have a system in place, what do you do with all that food? And now we're seeing you just have to throw it away. As you mentioned, a lot of this food is being thrown away because so many restaurants are closed. There are many mayors in the suburbs who are looking to change that. They are frustrated with the pace of reopening and how uneven it is. You have some big box stores that are open while some small mom and pop shops are not. Let's talk about it. Keith Peacock, mayor of Orland Park, is joining us. Mr. Mayor, what do you make of the governor's five-phase plan? The the plan that he that he rolled out on Tuesday was very similar to the plan that we sent him on August 24th. Uh, about 90% of it's the same. Where there are differences is well, I believe the 28-day rollout's uh, too long. I also believe that his last phase, he's essentially requiring the the virus to practically be eradicated, which we've never done. We've done once in the history of uh, mankind, smallpox, and it took us a couple of hundred years. So I think that's a little bit too much. Also, I'm a little concerned that he doesn't really address our vulnerable populations or our nursing homes. And the CDC clearly recommends that they continue to shelter in place and don't take visitors through the whole rollout phase because we know that the, the 87% of the deaths in Illinois are over 60 and 95% have compromised immune systems. So if a lot of what was in your recommendation, and other mayors too, uh, if a lot of what was in your recommendation the governor adopted, give us a sense of what maybe a few of those things are, things that you think are actually good in this plan. So his phase three maps to our phase one almost exactly except for restaurants. We think that restaurants should be in phase three at 50% capacity. He does not have that until phase four. Uh, The phase four, uh, most of the things are the same. You know, phase five is obviously a complete opening. It's really the the timing of the opening, how long we're waiting between. The CDC recommends 14 days. Every other state is using 14 days. The governor's plan says 28. Additionally, that la- that final phase of complete opening, it is not feasible to think that we're going to eradicate this or for sure have a virus or, uh, or excuse me, a vaccine or um, have a effective treatment. So do you then move to, I mean, whether it's restaurants or, or just about any business, I mean, do you see just about everything? What, what would you like? Just about everything to reopen with social distancing, decreased capacity, that sort of stuff? Yeah, pretty much uh, most businesses would be able to open in the next phase. I mean, re- the reality is, is in Orland Park, we have so many essential businesses from Home Depot to Lowe's to Costco to all the grocery stores or Target. Um, you know, we have 20,000 people a day going through those big stores. And in seven weeks, we have one case tied to those stores. So it only makes sense to me that our other stores can can open as well, provided they put the appropriate safety measures in place. So what have you been hearing from the small business owners then? You have, uh, we've been hearing here at WBBM some complaints. Small businesses are closed. The big box stores are open and they feel like it's, it's unfair. It, it is unfair. I and mean, mom and pop stores can't survive. 
they already compete against the chain stores and now they're at a competitive disadvantage. Our restaurants won't make it to the governor's plan timing of around July 1st. Um, and, you know, the, and it's not just the mom and pop stores that can't survive. The chain stores that aren't open or are partially open, they can't either. And our, their employees can't survive without the jobs. The unemployment won't last forever. And we need a strong economy in order to, frankly, to take care of our COVID patients and have a valid health care, a, a good health care system. We need to have a strong economy as well. So we're a smart people in America. We can do both and we can open safely and keep people safe. That's the story on retail. But the NFL is wondering the exact same thing. Is there a way to safely reopen with fans in the stands watching the games this fall? Let's talk about that with Mike Ozanian, assistant managing editor of Forbes Media, co-host of Forbes Sports Money on the Yes Network in New York. Mike, always good to talk with you about this. So tell us, initial plans are coming out. One NFL team is throwing a feeler out there. What are you hearing? Well, Cisco, Tim Garfinkel, the president of the Dolphins, has outlined a plan where you could have some fans come to games. Let's say you have a stadium, maybe a fifth full, so you're able to have social distancing. You're able to order food from your seats. And uh, this would allow for at least some fans to come to games should the season open because, as it appears now, uh, there are many states that are pushing further and further out the belief that we're going to need social distancing. So at least this will enable some football fans to attend games and for the season to start in the fall. So you sort of have, uh, I guess, maybe the, the better of some bad options, right? Because if the other option is football teams playing in empty stadiums, well, 15,000 fans would be better. Well, absolutely. Certainly from a, a revenue standpoint, because if you look at the NFL as a $16 billion or so business, about a third of that revenue comes from the stadiums. The majority comes from television. But that's still important revenue. And, of course, players, too, want to see more revenue because they get paid about half of all revenue from the league. So if you can put into effect policies that will have safe, safe social distancing – Uh, and also get the players to buy in for their accommodations to be safe. And, of course, the people that work at the stadiums, they also have to buy into such a plan to feel comfortable with it. Then it would be better than certainly having no games at all, Uh, no fans at all in the stadium. And players would have to figure out what it's like to play, especially to still have home field advantage when it's just, if you have 15,000 people in a stadium that holds, you know, 60,000, 70,000 people, it's not quite going to be as loud as it ordinarily would. That's right. You know, it wouldn't have the same feel to it. But, you know, we're all dealing with the so-called new normal, and it may not be an option to have full stadiums. So what they really be weighing is partially full stadiums against nobody in stadiums at all. And I would tend to think that both from a revenue perspective and from the feeling at least having some fans there, they would choose to have the stadiums at least partially filled. Uh, The other big option uh, uh, would be, of course, if we have a vaccine uh, that would uh, enable us to have full stadiums, but that's probably a ways off. I think another big thing they're going to have to figure out is – especially for college, Cisco, is where you have fans coming from out of state. Different states have had uh, the pandemic hit them in different ways. What do we do to ensure the safety of people coming from different states and dealing with issues like tailgating? But 
the Dolphins are a very smart organization. Their owner, Stephen Ross, is, is a, an incredibly smart guy, a very successful businessman. And I, I don't think that they would do this unless they had something in place that they feel that the players and fans and workers at the stadiums would feel safe. Speaking of workers, of course, stadium workers are outside the home, but there are a lot of people working inside the home, and this is a whole different environment. What do you do if you have a micromanaging boss who's trying to keep tabs on you while you're working from home? Rick Cobb, Executive Vice President at Challenger Gray and Christmas, joined us to talk about this on the WBBM Noon Business Hour. Rick, I'm I'm a little scared to talk to you about this. I'm afraid my boss is going to think there's a reason I'm having you on the show today to talk about this. And mine's going to interrupt you and tell me I can't do the interview. <laughs> so so, so we, we understand each other here. Uh, what do you do? Because you have, in some respects, a little more freedom when you're at home, but then you have some bosses who are afraid of that freedom. Yeah. Well, let's talk about there's two people in this relationship, and we've got to, we've got to understand both of them. So the first one is obviously the micromanaging boss. And, and you need to figure out where is that coming from? Is that them as a person? Is, is it something they're reacting to based on the way they're being managed, their boss, or is it the culture of the organization? And so we can get more into that in a minute. But the reason that, that people tend to micromanage is, one, because they like their old job they used to have, which you now have, and they feel more comfortable with that, so it's a way to reconnect. Two, they're, they, they're trying to stay connected with you, and it's the only way they know how. But more commonly, it's just flat-out fear. I need to be in authority. I like the power, and this is the only way that I can do it. Now, on the other end, what about you? If, if you're a pleaser and you're going to salute and say, yes, ma'am, that's, that's a bottomless pit. It's like, you're, it's like making your three-year-old happy. It's not possible. Are there also generational differences, too, where you, you just have different working styles and different expectations in different generations of workers? Oh, absolutely. I think that the, the, the later generations, the, what do we want to call the millennials and the, the Gen Zs, they're a lot more competent in certain areas and they don't really like that their reaction to micromanagement is that of hierarchy. It's a system. It's got these layers of management and it's just this unwieldy thing that gets in the way. It's mom and dad telling me what to do. So they in, immediately react to it. The, the real issue, though, becomes communication. How do you – you have to get in front of this. It's still your boss. So the best thing that you can do is, is get in front of it and set the table, you know, and, and have keys about, uh, you know, tell me how you like the work to be done and, and asking for guidance, giving them a part in meetings where you say to your boss, you know, Joanne, would you, be, would you please come on this call today for the first couple of minutes? I'd really like for you to address this one issue. And then try to get in front of also how they like to be communicated with. Some people are email, some people are phone calls, some people are text. If you are telling them what they need to hear, but it's in the wrong medium, you might as well, you know, put it in a bottle and throw it in the water. And communication is key here. I mean, it sounds like that's what you're saying here. You have to manage expectations both as a boss and an employee. Right. Well, we're, we're managing our we're managing the micromanager. So you don't really it's not any it's not a level playing field. You have to figure them out and try to get in front of what they want. If you don't like interacting with somebody or the way they interact with you, avoiding it's not going to work when they're your boss. It just means it's going to get worse. You're going to create the problem rather than solve it. So you have to get in front of it by figuring out how they like to work, what they want to know. And the more of that, the more of the fear you can reduce for them if, if it happens to be their boss, 
you know, to come back to them and say, Joanne, would it be okay? Would you, would you like me to copy in Frank on this once I get you the data or get it to you right away before your meeting with Frank? Now you've demonstrated you understand where the, where the fear is coming from and you're, you're on their team and trying to help them. That's how you handle the delicate situation of a micromanaging boss. But what about the delicate situation of an automobile accident in a pandemic? How do you handle it safely? Susanna Gotch is here. She is director and industry analyst at CCC Information Services here in Chicago. Susanna, what do you do? You want to stay safe, but there are things that you have to do when there's an auto accident. So first and foremost, and and this is uh, pre-COVID and post-COVID, you need to be safe. And the first thing you want to do is make sure that no one is injured, no one needs medical attention. And if anybody is hurt, call 911. If no one is is injured, then we want to continue to do what we're doing today, which is respect personal distance and essentially remind the other person, even though it's a difficult situation, that they need to remain six feet away from where you are. And today, everybody drives around for the most part with their mobile phone, has camera capability, pull out your own insurance company, don't hand it to them, take your own pictures take pictures of the other damage of the vehicle and exchange that information. That way they even have your cell phone number in in case they need their additional contact information. That's especially good at those minor crashes where ordinarily you wouldn't have to call the police. As you're mentioning, you just exchange the info, just do it safely. Correct. Yep. Because what we want to do is just take care of the business of the crash, make sure everybody is safe, but then move on to make sure that you've documented what happened with the accident, that you understand, um, that you share the, the necessary information. And then if you, you want to uh, contact your insurance company, many of the insurers today offer capabilities to file a claim online just immediately from your cell phone, submit photos, and go through a whole digital claims process. As far as getting damage repaired, ordinarily you'd have to take that vehicle to three shops if you want multiple estimates. What do you do now? Today, many carriers are offering digital capabilities where you take just a number of photos of your car, you submit that to them, and they can produce an estimate. You can even then take those estimates. We have a, uh, there's a website called carwise.com. You can submit your photos through that website and get reach out, see the reviews, see the capabilities of each shop, their hours of open, see any special uh, procedures that they're following during the COVID-19, whether they're actually even willing to come pick up your vehicle. All of that information can be reviewed online, and then get your estimate back and get your car processed uh, and on the road to repair. Thanks so much for those tips. That will be even more important as more and more people get back to work in the coming weeks. Join us next week for another edition of the WBBM In-Depth Podcast, where we take a deep dive into a story we're telling on the air. And be sure to subscribe to receive this free podcast every Wednesday. And, of course, listen anytime for the stories that matter by listening to WBBM on the Radio.com app or on your radio. Thanks for joining us. I'm Cisco Cotto. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 